Welcome to Live at the National Constitution Center, the podcast sharing live constitutional conversations and debates hosted by the National Constitution Center in person and online. I'm Jackie McDermott, the show's producer. How should we understand the legacy of the American Revolution and the founders in the 21st century? We hosted an exploration of that question earlier this fall. NCC President Jeffrey Rosen was joined in person by best-selling historian Gordon Wood, who unveiled his newest book, Power and Liberty, Constitutionalism in the American Revolution. Historian Edward Larson joined the panel in person as well, and author Emily Pierce and scholar Lucas Morrell joined virtually. This conversation was held on Constitution Day, September 17th, 2021. Here's Jeff to get the conversation started. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the National Constitution Center. Hooray! It is so wonderful to see you in person. We are safely socially distanced, but we are together in our yearning for learning and light. And that's exactly what we're going to get tonight from America's greatest historians. We are so fortunate on Constitution Day to welcome them to the Constitution Center to celebrate and learn from Gordon Wood's new book and to hear responses to it by three of his most distinguished colleagues. So welcome to all of our great panelists. Gordon, congratulations on the book. I read it as I do many things on Kindle, so I I have it right here. And the first um, chapter about the imperial debate starts in 1765 or so, uh, although of course it looks back earlier and talks about the central declaration of the Stamp Act Congress. It is inseparably essential to the freedom of a people and the undoubted rights of Englishmen that no taxes should be imposed on them but with their own consent, given personally or by their representatives. What was the imperial debate? Well, I don't want to tell you the whole debate, but it starts over the issue of representation. The colonists instinctively know that uh, they cannot allow this parliament 3,000 miles away to make decisions of such importance as taxation on them without their having a say. So right from the outset, in the Stamp Act Congress, which, is a, which meets in, in reaction to the Stamp Act, which is a tax on all paper products in, um, in, in, in America, uh, they, they know instinctively they their colonial assemblies will be the, uh, the legislature that will uh, determine taxation. Now, they have an awkward position because they have accepted parliamentary regulation of their trade. And so that is always a, a problem for them. But they uh, can make it very clear that they will never have representation, uh, be, be outside of their own colonial legislatures, only they are willing to, represent, to, to recognize the supremacy of parliament in the empire. That concession confuses the English because the English look at parliament as a sovereign body. In fact, it is the protector of liberty. It is the, uh, it's the Whig instrument that they have honored ever since the Glorious Revolution. It is what curbs the crown, which is a source of tyranny. So they're very confused by the American argument. How can you be opposed to parliament? The uh, argument starts over representation. The English say, you, 
The Americans say we're not represented, and they say, yes, you are. You're virtually represented. They use that term, virtual, which we now are familiar with, of course, because we have a virtual program going on here. Uh, but they, they refuse to accept that notion. Uh, it starts with representation, but by the late 60s, it shifts into a question of sovereignty, because the English come back with this doctrine of sovereignty, which runs through the whole revolutionary era. Uh, and comes back to haunt the Federalists later in 1787-88. The Doctrine of Sovereignty says there must be, in every state, one final supreme lawmaking authority. And for the English, that's Parliament, King and Parliament. The Americans can't accept that, because if they do, then they, they're convicted. You, you can't be, as the English pamphleteers say, you can't be half into under Parliament's sovereignty. You have to, if you accept one iota of Parliament's authority, then you must accept all. And since the Americans have already accepted Parliament's right to regulate their trade, they must be under Parliament's authority. Given that alter, and if you're outside of Parliament's authority in one, even in one little respect, then you must be totally outside of all Parliament's authority, which the, to, to a good Whig seems absurd. Nobody would choose to be outside of Parliament's authority. So that's how the imperial debate goes. The Americans, confronted with that alternative, decide to, okay, if that's what we're, our choice, we're outside of Parliament's authority completely. And by 1774, all of the leading intellectuals, Jefferson, Franklin, Wilson, all concede that they are tied totally only to the king and that they have no, they have no recognition whatsoever of Parliament's authority over them. It's not a very uh, uh, accurate uh, uh, portrayal of their experience but they're forced into it by this doctrine of sovereignty. So that when you come to the Declaration of Independence, these legal, these lawyers in the Continental Congress are scrupulous in trying to avoid any mention of Parliament in the Declaration, even though Parliament was the source of the Stamp Act, the Townsend Duties, the Coercive Acts. Parliament is not mentioned except in, tangentially you, the king, King George, is the source of all tyranny. So they say, you, George, you've done this, that, this, and you've conspired with others, meaning the parliament. So the, the, this is the way the argument, they're, they're very, very legally minded, and the break comes solely from the crown at that point because we've, we Americans have ceased recognizing any authority of parliament over us. That's a brief summary of that first chapter. Uh, it's fascinating and crucial, and you've introduced us to this idea that for the uh, colonists, the idea of two sovereignties was a state within a state, imperium in imperio is a solecism, right. and they struggled to relocate sovereignty from parliament, where it was in Britain, to allegiance to the king, and then eventually, as you tell us in future chapters, uh, through the genius of James Wilson and others in the people themselves. So Ed Larson, help us take the story that Gordon Wood has laid out from the imperial debate in the 1760s to the declaration you describe in your wonderful book, uh, Franklin and Washington, The Founding Partnership, Franklin's own 
gyrations about where sovereignty is located and his compromises to say, well, maybe taxes are okay if they're um, imports but not exports and try, trying to split the difference. But eventually he came around to independence and he, like the others, decided that sovereignty was in the people. So how would you tell that story of the, that transformation? Well, it certainly build on what Gordon's already said. Um, there was a struggle to understand how to draw these lines of virtual representation because they understood the terms virtual representation and the British were using them and they could say, and some did, well, we are virtually represented just like women are virtually represented. And they would use that exact analogy of women being virtually represented by their husbands voting even though they can't vote. Um, and they did in some pamphlets. If everyone's treated the same, we're like Manchester. Manchester had grown to be a city of, I don't know, second or third largest city in England and had no representatives in parliament because it didn't exist when they divided up the seats. And so we are represented like Manchester as long as we're treated the same. So if it's regulatory, they could look back. If it's a regulatory law that it's tariffs on something coming into the empire, well, English people are paying that as well as people, English people in America. Uh, and therefore, you are virtually represented like the people in Manchester. But if it's a tax solely on the colonies, as the Stamp Act was, then how can we be virtually represented? We, and they would use this terminology, which was um, um, as, as extreme then as it is today. This is, we're slaves. We're nothing better than slaves. If you can impose a tax just on us, just on us, the Stamp Act, only on us. You're not imposing it on people in England. And therefore, we're not virtually represented for that tax. Um, now, I agree with Gordon, absolutely. Then they carried on to the point that, well, they're pushed to the point to say, well, then we're not represented in Parliament for anything. But their originals are stopping point. If you look at the writings of Delaney, um, they, would, they could draw those lines. But if you pushed him beyond, and that's where Franklin was trying to draw a line, not very successfully. I agree with Gordon on that as well. Um, but then you get to the point Okay, if we're, if, we're, if we're not parliament, where is sovereignty? Now you can go way back into the colonial tradition. The original motto, as Gordon probably knows, and you probably know, the original motto of Virginia, and I hope I get it right, was, uh, uh, it was in Latin, Virginia, Virginium M. Quattro, Virginia the fourth, Virginia is the fourth. Um, I hope it's the fourth, it could have been the fifth. The point was that Virginia was the first colony and therefore it was equivalent to Scotland. It was an independent domain like Scotland and that's that was their motto. Virginia makes, Virginia makes four, that was the motto. Virginia makes four if you translate it. And the other, the other one was Scotland and the other was England and I think the other was Wales. Um, and the point was we're just under the king and our assembly should be equivalent to parliament. And that's where they, the other place they tried to come down. One point would be, yes, Franklin's argument, yes, let's have representatives in England, but that, I agree, in the British parliament, that didn't fly for a variety of practical reasons. But the argument could be, okay, 
we're each equivalent of England, just as Scotland was, and this would be an analogy they would use, just like Scotland before the Union of 1707, where Scotland had its own parliament, but it was under the king, or as they would often say, Hanover. Hanover was directly under the king. The king was the elector of Hanover, and he had royalty. He was a ruler there. Let's be like that. And that's why, as you're pointing out, when they have to transfer sovereignty, and they have a very difficult idea of splitting sovereignty, that's gonna be a problem on the Constitution. How do you split sovereignty between the states and the central government? The idea is, all right, so the only thing, if we already conceptually view ourselves as the equivalent of Scotland before 1707, or as Hanover, we're only under the king. The only person we have to break from is the king. And that's why Jefferson very artfully wrote the Declaration of Independence. If you read pamphlets much before this, they were all directed against Parliament. If you read the pamphlets of Dickinson, uh, the Farmer's Papers, or all the other pamphlets by, um, by writings by Hamilton or, or, or Jefferson earlier, they were directed toward the parliament. Now they have, but then they don't have the sovereignty problem. But now if they're breaking with the king, suddenly who's sovereign? Because they have this history of each colony slash state having sovereignty through its assembly to the king versus the idea if we don't have the king where is sovereignty? Is the sovereignty, as Washington liked to say in the circular letter to the states, for example, which I view as the most important document between the, uh, which was in 18, which was in 17, I think 1782, I think he wrote that, 1783. I think that was the most important political document between the Declaration of Independence and the, the um, Constitution. He was, pointing to that the central government has to have all power over everything that is common to all the colonies, of the states then. Well, if that's the case, if, if the argument of the circular letter to the states is correct, and other people who were following that line of thinking that Washington was espousing, and you can find it in Franklin as well, you can find it in Wilson, then, well, what's sovereign? Madison is already playing with ideas, well, we can have some joint sovereignty, but they didn't think that way. And so ultimately, if you're reading it is, and I think they go into the Constitutional Convention with this puzzle, and that's where uh, Roger Sherman is saying, no, we've got to keep the states sovereign, or a Wilson thinking, no, and that's why he's pushing for the people, pushing on the people and pushing in direct election, no, we've got to have the central government sovereign. And that's the funny thing floating around Washington's circular letter to the states, where ultimately, once we break from the king, who is independent? And Washington repeatedly makes that argument. We weren't granted independence under the peace treaty with England. We weren't granted independence as 13 individual states granted independence. We were granted independence as a whole union. In contrast, at the Declaration of Independence, you could make a plausible argument, some states did, that each state was declaring independence in a corporate fashion, and that each state had to separately deal with it. So the question is, who is independent, who isn't? And if it's the, if it's the United States, 
Is the United States a singular noun or is it a plural noun is what it comes down to in a way. And that's an issue that continues beyond the Constitution, but it's an issue of where does sovereignty lie if it no longer lies with the king? Uh, perfectly phrased. Uh, Lucas, um, you've written so powerfully about Lincoln and the founders, and Lincoln quoted James Wilson for the proposition that secession was unconstitutional because we the people of the United States as a whole having made the union, you'd need the consent of we the people as a whole to alter it. Is it fair to say that Wilson deserves credit for redefining sovereignty and placing it in we the people of the United States? And how would you rate his contribution to American constitutional history? Well, I agree that uh, James Wilson was the legal mind at the Constitutional Convention. There's no doubt about it. And uh, his lectures are still read to this day, as has been said. Um, uh, but my reading of Lincoln, of course, uh, whether it's a gloss on, on Wilson or others that he read, we're not clear that, um, it's unclear to me at least in all my time reading Lincoln that he ever read the Federalist Papers. I don't think he did. Uh, but uh, what Lincoln argues in his first inaugural address when he talks about uh, secession, he only grants it arguendo. That is to say, he only grants the idea of it having to be um, uh, an agreement among the states uh, to deny that any particular state can unilaterally leave the union. He only grants that uh, in order to show that uh, even if you were to believe in the compact theory of states that the South still didn't, uh, by, at a state-by-state -state level, still didn't have the right to secede. Uh, the American people, as Lincoln understood it, were the source, as Madison puts it, the true fountain of all authority true sovereignty lies with the people, not with any um, government. Uh, the government is, is uh, as it were, borrowed uh, powers. Uh, they are delegated their authority, whether at the state or the federal level. So Lincoln was trying to reinforce the conviction among American people that they are the, the true uh, masters of their uh, government and not the other way around. He saw secession as anarchy, and he meant it. Uh, you cannot participate in an election and then say uh, uh, that either we rule uh, or we ruin in all events. Uh, if you participate in an election, uh, the viability of republics depends on being good winners and good losers. And just as uh, Republicans were good losers in 1856, all of the Democrats or those who voted for Democrats needed to be good losers in 1860. And of course, secession was the uh, exhibit A in terms of resistance and not my president and all that. So uh, my, my sense of Lincoln's understanding and drawing from the founders, the legacy of the founders, is his understanding that uh, sovereignty, true sovereignty, uh, lies with the people. Um, everyone has a natural right uh, to rule himself and can only be told what to do if he gives his consent uh, to government. That's both a question of establishing the government, of founding, as we call it, as well as the operative principle, right? We the people, right? Owned and operated by the American people. So voting or elections uh, is the way that we remind our rulers, uh, in particular, every now and then, that they have delegated authority. Thank you uh, very much for that. Uh, Emily, in your uh, forthcoming book, uh, you argue 
that there were three conceptions of attachment at the time of the founding, a political attachment, a, a utilitarian theory, uh, a cultural theory, and a participatory theory. All, all three of them sound really interesting and I think uh, relevant to this question of sovereignty. So, so tell us what these three theories of attachment are and, and how they relate to sovereignty. Sure. So I think the connection to sovereignty is really that if the people are ultimately sovereign, in order for the institutions to survive, the people have to buy in to them. And most people actually aren't born uh, loving the Constitution or willing to support um, the institutions of government. And so what the founders recognized is that there would have to be an ongoing effort to attach people to the institutions and to the constitution so that they would le be legitimate um, and so that the people's sovereignty could be transferred to those institutions. Um, what I argue is that um, they sort of depict these three different ways that uh, future statesmen might go about trying to upkeep attachments or to keep people connected to the constitution. Um, the cultural is sort of um, turning the constitution and the institutions into a part of our shared cultural heritage, um, a sort of version of a shared nationalism that would uh, make us all feel as though the constitution is something that we've inherited, something that's a, a part of ourselves. Um, the participatory approach is that actually people are very invested in things that they have a hand in making. And so if you can allow people to participate in the processes of political decision making, not just allow them to vote, but allow them to really have a say in the outcome of um, elections and in the outcome of, of the policymaking process, they'll be more inclined to see the benefits of those institutions, to, to feel like the, the policies that they create are things that they had a hand in. Um, it makes their sovereignty sort of feel more real to them. And the utilitarian is the idea that people feel more attached to and are more willing to support a government that seems to do good things for them. So the more the government can serve the public interest and make clear that they are serving the public interest, sort of claim credit for what they're doing, the more likely the people will be to continue to legitimize those institutions and uphold them um, so that they can survive challenges and um, the kinds of, of pushback that the Civil War obviously made made prominent. Wonderful. Uh, so powerful and so great that you cite Wilson as uh, support for the participatory theory and that all three of those theories have supporters among different people in the founding era. Uh, Gordon Wood, my only regret is I don't think we're going to be able to go chapter by chapter because <laughs> your, your no, discussion okay, has no. provoked such, well, look, I, I such wanna, I, I'd like to clarify something on this sovereignty because yeah. you get a little confusion. When we talk about the sovereignty of the people, we're not talking about all power derived from the people. All Whigs on both sides of the Atlantic believe that. There's nobody left who believes in the divine right of kings. So that the, even the English believe that the king ultimately derived his authority from the people. That's not what the Americans mean by placing sovereignty, which is a lawmaking authority. The ultimate lawmaking authority lies with the people. Now, as this was worked out in our own, uh, this is what allowed the, for the recall election in California. The ultimate, do you have the people in the middle of the person's term recalling or attempting to recall 
a elected official. It's the ultimate lawmaking authority that's meant by sovereignty, and that that's not the notion of, of power being derived from the people, which is a kind of conventional wisdom, I think, at this point. I think that need to be clarified. Crucially important, power is not only derived from, which was conventional, as you say, but remains in the people, right, which is exactly. central. So your, your next chapters on uh, state, uh, the state constitutions and then the crisis of the 1780s take us up to the federal constitution, um, which you discuss uh, both the debates over uh, national power and also on uh, slavery. And among the many fresh and arresting uh, learnings uh, from your chapters about the path to the Constitution, you reject the view that it was all a question of economic self-interest on the part of the framers and stress that really it was a fear of democracy, in particular a fear of paper money in Massachusetts uh, and Shays' Rebellion that led to the calling of the convention. And, and, and in your superb epilogue, you say it all comes back to Rhode Island. And Rhode Island is sort of a, a pigony or a, a synecdoche or whatever you want, a less fancy word, an example of, uh, of, of this uh, rage for paper money that represented the future and what the founders were trying to fight against. So tell us as much of that story as you can, taking us up, up, up to the federal convention. Look, it, it's a revolution of 13 independent states who start with that. And the Articles of Confederation is a treaty among these states. It's like the EU today. Virginia to Jefferson is my country. So if you think of it in those terms, you can understand the Articles of Confederation. It is a treaty just like the Treaty of Lisbon, which is the basis for the EU. Now, something had to happen. In 1776, nobody in his wildest dreams, and I mean no one, even conceived of a strong national government of the kind that we finally got 10 years later. It's just nobody thinks about it. Nobody even imagines it. Nobody throws it out as a possibility. It's not even in anyone's consciousness. So something awful had to happen in those 10 years to change a lot of people's minds in order for them to create this federal government. It ran against all their experience. They had this distant government in England that was trying to dictate to them. Why would they create another long distant government? And all of the theory at the time, Montesquieu being the most important, said republics have to be small and homogeneous in size. They can't be large. So why, why would they create this national government? And it's not, you don't want to think of the national government as, or the articles as an early version of the national government. That, as I say, it's a treaty. So they throw out the articles and create this entirely new government, much to the, I think, shock and amazement of the bulk of the population. When, they caught, when these 55 guys meet in Philadelphia here, down the street here, they are not really representative of the people as a whole. It's a loaded convention, and it's loaded with nationalists. People, they quite shrewdly call themselves federalists, but they're really nationalists. They want to create a strong national government. And Madison is a cru crucial figure because he draws up a working paper that 
helps him clarify his own ideas, and he essentially writes the Virginia Plan, which is the model for the convention. And what, what Madison is most upset by is not the weaknesses of the Articles. Everyone accepted that there were weaknesses in the Articles. We need a taxing power, and we need the power to regulate trade. And by 1786, I, I would say that the, the bulk, if not everyone, in the political nation, including later Anti-Federalists, were in agreement that those two amendments ought to be added to the Articles. What Madison and his colleagues do, these nationalists, is essentially hijack that reform movement and use it as a cover, if you will, or an excuse to do something much bigger. Not to amend the articles, but to scrap them entirely and create this new government. And it comes as a shock when it's in, on this day, September 17th, how many years ago? 234. <laughs> it was. I think it's 234. Uh, if I, if I got it. 234 years ago, it is announced to the world, to the American world, and to the world, and most people are shocked and stunned. This is not what we bargained for. We thought you guys were meeting to amend the articles, and all of a sudden you come up with this great big, this great big powerful nation, this government. This is uh, unbelievable. And I think if there'd been a, a, a fair kind of a modern election, uh, the, the, um, the, the, the new constitution would have been defeated. But it, the, the, given the politics of it, and in each state, the ratifying conventions uh, finally pass it. Ultimately, I think, because it's either this, or, as Richard Henry Lee, who was an opponent, he says, it's either this or nothing. And most people don't want nothing. That, is in short, is, is how the Constitution gets created. <laughs> I mean, listen to the significance of, of Gordon Wood's uh, distillation, that really it was this fear of, of democracy, of mob violence, of, of rage for paper money in the states embodied in Shays Rebellion that, Look, that, we that are, led these people we've, to... we've experienced democracy with, with uh, President Trump. Social media is the ultimate democratic instrument. It has democratized our society in a way that we could never have imagined. An individual, one individual, can have an effect by linking up through social media with hundreds if not thousands of others. This is a scary process. Democracy has its problems and we're experiencing it. And Madison had his. Democracy has that kind of side to it and therefore needed to be controlled and registered. The reason they give so much authority to the court, to the courts back then, and now we have them in, in spades, is because the court was seen as the most important, impressive check on democracy. We don't talk about it in those terms today, um, but that's, we have nine, unelected people making decisions about the United States, you know, that affect us. It's the most undemocratic process you could ever imagine. Uh, and the fact that we've allowed it, it shows that I think beneath the surface we have our own misgivings about democracy, uh, if it's carried too far or misused. So I think it's a, 
uh, it's an interesting fact that uh, Madison was so concerned about what we would call democracy. Thank you for putting it so clearly and powerfully. And I'm going to ask each of your colleagues uh, this question, and, and Ed, I'll, Ed, I'll ask you to start. First of all, did you agree with Gordon Wood's analysis that it was this fear of democracy that was the central motivating factor for calling the Constitution? And in what ways do you think, if you do agree, this fear of democracy was embodied in the Constitution they created? I do think, as we were talking before, that they went into Philadelphia without a clear concept, as Gordon said, that the people of national sovereignty and the people being ultimately sovereign. Uh, that's why you get, um, and it's captured in starting the Constitution as we the people, which is, was the idea of Wilson and Governor Morris uh, with this soaring preamble. And that becomes a target. So you have um, Patrick Henry at the Virginia Ratifying Convention, but also in public statements before it, saying, how dare you say we the people created? you should say, we the states. And um, the Virginia plan had that, um, that you list the states, and the states create this. Um, it isn't the people of the whole country. It's a creation of the states. But as long as it's a creation of the states, and this is Wilson again thinking, then in some way, it more or less, it comes back to this League of Friendship, which is what the, the treaty, as Gordon calls it, or the League of Friendship, as they called it. The, 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 the Articles of Confederation created a League of Friendship, that here were 13 sovereign states leagued together. And, um, but if you go back to the document I keep hammering on, the circular letter to the states, Washington says, we need a central government that is the final say in everything that is common to all of us, common to all the states, which wouldn't be slavery, which wouldn't be education. You can think of things that wouldn't be. But it would be international and interstate commerce. He makes that clear. And he also says in the circular letter states, this is indivisible. Once you join, you can't get out. He says that in the circular letter to the states of, of, of 1783. We need a central government which you can't leave. Once you're in, it's a one-way ratchet. Um, so by saying that commerce is going to move, and many people argued, it wasn't just taxation. Um, certainly everyone would agree that the central government, even the anti-federalists, would agree that the central government needed more power to impose a tariff that would affect everybody. Um, uh, and um, so that more power was agreed to. But then the question was, and I do think people saw it coming in. I think Madison saw it coming in. I think Washington. Washington very clearly said, I'm not going unless I am confident. I'm not going to Philadelphia, to that convention, even though I've been named by the Virginia picked by Virginia to go. I'm not going unless I'm confident they have power to make radical decisions. That was the phrase he used. Well, Washington's not a radical man. No, he made clear, and he had proposals in that he had received. He had asked the people he trusted most, John Jay, Knox, 
Madison, had all sent him drafts of the type of central government they wanted. And the central government always had a two-house legislature, not a one-house, like the Articles of Confederation, which is like a UN. The UN is sort of like, you know, everybody sends a representative. They're recallable at will. Um, they're not um, by each state. And the states retain sovereignty. He says, I will only go if it can be a fundamental transformation. And Madison spent most of the two months before going to Philadelphia living at Mount Vernon. You know, he didn't have a wife then. He didn't have other things. And he stayed at Mount Vernon. He worked on, on these ideas at Mount Vernon, talking with Washington. And so they went in with a pretty clear idea. It wasn't just Madison. Washington was appraised to it. Washington appraised Franklin. The first person he visits when he comes to Philadelphia is Franklin, because he says, we've got to be on the same wavelength, because we're the two most respected people nationally. They're the two national heroes. We got to be working on the same wavelength. And so they came, and Wilson was a fellow thinker. Franklin, as you know, had, had met, had had a regular weekly meeting at his house where Governor Morris and, and Wilson and others had come. And they had talked about these things. So they came prepared. And so when nobody else showed up on time, the, Philadelphia, the Pennsylvania de delegation and the Virginians who were there, and at first it was only two, at first it was only Washington and Madison, but then Mason and some others begin to roll in. And they finalize Madison's thinking into the Virginia plan, which is called the Virginia plan, not because it had anything to do with, with, with Madison, but because it was offered by the governor of Virginia, Randolph. Um, they offer really the plan for a national government. And if you read the Virginia plan, it doesn't say, Wilson's, um, uh, uh, Gordon was very clever to say that they did pick up, they turned the term to Federalists, but when they offered the Virginia plan, it says national government, and this is a national government they're creating, and that's what they really did create, a national government. Uh, uh, and that's, and so, they were already thinking. They hadn't fleshed it all out. It took the whole convention for them to fully understand it. But w this movement of sovereignty and of we the people and where it would all come from. And they had to bring along people like Roger Sherman kicking and screaming. And they never could bring along um, others who voted against it then. And they could have never have brought along Patrick Henry. I would argue that they could never have pulled it off under giving going one step further than Gordon. Gordon said it was 55 people who weren't truly representative. I think if, if it hadn't been in secret, if this thing, if what they were coming up with had been made public and the newspapers had been reporting it, people like Patrick Henry, would have, who was chosen as a, as a delegate for Virginia, but didn't come because he thought it was a waste of time, he would have been, he, he was, he claims it was because it smelled a rat. I think he was, that was later. He didn't smell a rat was the problem. He would have shown up. All these other people would have come and the whole thing would have been, um, would have been derailed, which is what Gordon sort of was, was suggesting. And I'm just sort of underscoring what he's saying. Thank, thank you for that. Lu Lucas, um, you quote Lincoln at Springfield, warning of mob violence and saying when reason rather than passion prevails, rather when passion rather than reason prevails, then democracy is threatened. Uh, he's channeling Madison's fears at Shays' Rebellion, although he's responding to violence against abolitionist newspaper editors and African-Americans who are being lynched and murdered through terrorism. 
do, do you agree with Gordon's analysis that uh, it was this fear of mob violence and democracy that uh, led to the Constitution? And does the Lincoln experience suggest that it was mob action in particular rather than democracy in general that, that made the founders afraid? Uh, and, and how is it reflected in the Constitution? I, I hope I'm not just, uh, it's not just a question of semantics here, but uh, I would phrase it differently. Um, I, I, and democracy, in fact, was not a word that Lincoln used very often at all, but that didn't mean that he was against democracy, right? As I would not be a slave, so I would not be a master. That's his definition of democracy. One of the few times he mentioned uh, that word but I would phrase it differently. It's not so much that um, Lincoln was afraid of, of, of democracy per se or direct rule by the American people. Uh, what he feared is, is something that the founders strived mightily to try to establish, which is what we call the rule of law. Okay, And that ultimately derives uh, from the principle of consent. And that what we're trying to do with consent uh, is not simply reflect the direct will of the American people, with consent, and ultimately I would say constitutionalism, uh, we are trying to create space for people to live according to uh, an informed consent, if you will. We wanna make space, uh, we, we wanna give time for reason to prevail over the passions. We want, uh, if, you, if you wanna use the word democracy, we want democracy to be deliberative. That's why you have a constitution, that's why you have representation. Uh, and so I would, uh, but I was, I was going to try to add uh, quickly on the Senate and in terms of uh, why the Constitutional Convention was called on the Senate, we have to remember there are two senators. They do not have to act as a block under the United States Constitution. They are voting their own judgment as to what the best interest of their state is in light of the collective good of the United States. So that is a huge difference from the Articles of Confederation where the delegation uh, had to vote as a block. So it wasn't just that they were recallable. Uh, they had to vote. The state had to speak with one voice. Under the United States Constitution, states are not constitutionally bound to speak with one voice. It is up to each of the two senators to decide. And of course, over time, they aren't voted on at the same time. They aren't appointed by the state legislature at the same time. We have staggered elections. So what you're seeing is actual mechanisms in the new constitution to promote deliberation, to make consent, not simply self-determination, not simply a mirror of the people, but as Madison put it in Federalist 10, to refine and enlarge the public views. That is to do the best good on behalf of the people. And that meant you had to create space and time for consent to work that out. Um, I would say uh, that, yeah, Shays' Rebellion had, had uh, something clearly to do with uh, the, the Constitutional Convention uh, ultimately in 1787. But especially if you bring up Washington, Washington uh, did have uh, a, an idea of the United States as a country. That was a gleam in his eye long before it was in most Americans' uh, uh, eye. And I would say that, that the need for, and, and uh, Professor Larson brought this up, the need for a stronger central government, a stronger national government, that was clear. Uh, Washington would have nothing to do with the, with the convention if he didn't think there was a reasonable chance for the central government to be equipped with power. Perhaps the most mundane but most pivotal change made at the Constitutional Convention, which makes it not like the, as you were calling it, a league of friendship uh, as the Articles of Confederation Perpetual Union were, 
was that Congress would actually now have the power to pass laws. They did not have that authority under the Articles of Confederation. The states, if you will, interposed themselves between their citizens and the authority of the Articles of Confederation Congress. Under the proposed Constitution, the biggest, one of the biggest changes, I would think, I think the most fundamental, is now you actually have a national government that circumvents the states, if you will. The states are involved. We did mention the Senate. But now you have laws acting not upon state legislatures, but acting directly upon the American people themselves, who are represented in the House of Representatives proportionally and expressed through their um, pre-existing political organizations through the states. So the fact that the United States Constitution now is equipped to pass actual laws, that's a, that, is, that is a sea change in terms of how the American people were governing themselves uh, previously under the Articles. Thank you so much for that crucial distinction, series of distinctions you were making between a mirroring of the people and a reflection that enlarged and refined their views. And that distinction between ordinary lawmaking and constitutional lawmaking is one that you just brought out so well, which Gordon Wood explores and elucidates so powerfully in his discussion of Jefferson and the other founders' understanding of the rise of conventions as bodies that would reflect the slow and deliberate uh, sense of the people and is crucial to American constitutionalism. Emily, uh, the um, founders thought that virtue was necessary for the republic to survive, and they defined virtue uh, as a personal and political act. Personally, citizens had to use their powers of reason to master their unreasonable passions like anger, jealousy, and fear. Uh, and politically, they needed to do that so they could choose wise representatives who would deliberate for them uh, to serve the common good rather than self-interest and partisanship. It sounds kind of uh, uh, rarefied uh, nowadays in light of some of the changes that Gordon flagged, including social media, the rise of political parties and the rest of it. Is the founder's notion of virtue as crucial to uh, constitutionalism uh, still relevant? So I think it's still relevant. I would say, though, that the, the founders' view of virtue, at least the federalist view of virtue, um, is a little bit different than the sort of pure civic virtue that um, many political theorists before the founders um, thought of. So we see the anti-federalists in the debates over the ratification really pushing for the need for virtue, the need for the Constitution to cultivate virtue in the citizens. And what the Federalists, I think, have is a little bit more faith that the institutions of government could do more of the work to get us the good laws that we needed, right? So you can rely on the individual citizen's virtue to get good laws that are then sort of able to, to maintain or keep us from the anarchy that, um, that Gordon sort of pointed out they were trying to avoid. You can rely on the citizen's virtue to get you those good laws. Um, but I think the Federalists sort of thought that there were ways that we could design institutions to help that process along. So the institutions could encourage um, good lawmaking, could encourage that kind of virtue in the citizen. So you're not wholly dependent on the citizens to produce it themselves. The problem is that you have to then maintain this relationship between the institutions and the public. If the institutions are going to encourage virtue, if they're going to um, sort of cultivate 
um, a sense among the citizens that the rule of law is worth upholding and the common good is worth pursuing. Um, that relationship has to be has to be cultivated. It has to be tended to. And I'm not sure that we've really done that. I think there was this sense that um, what the Federalists had done was created institutions that would work in perpetuity, um, that the Constitution could just sort of stand on its own ground once it had been ratified. And we've lost sight, I think, of the, the work that has to be done to make sure that the citizenry understands the Constitution, upholds the Constitution, and is committed to it. Um, that sort of cultivation of something like civic virtue, or at least a sort of constitutionalism among the people is something we don't do very much anymore. Um, in the sort of smallest way, we don't teach civic education anymore in America very much. Um, and in broader ways, we draw attention to um, things other than sort of the, the cultivation of virtue that might be, might be important to uphold those institutions. Absolutely. Uh, you, you so powerfully put the, uh, both the Federalist uh, notion of institutions doing some of the work and the crucial importance of teaching the Constitution for the cultivation of virtue. And that's exactly what we're doing tonight in this great discussion. And that's what the National Constitution Center was created to do. And that's what we're, we're doing every day. And I am thrilled to share. I just got the numbers. 25,000 people tuned in today to watch our Constitution Day program. So we are making some headway in the cultivation of civic knowledge. But thank you for putting the problem so well. All right. Well, we have, we're, the, the one thing we do at Constitution Center programs is end on time. And we are going to end in about 10 minutes. Um, so Gordon, this is the chance for you to put the rest of the book on the table. And there's so much in the chapters on the federal constitution, on slavery, and on the emergence of the judiciary. So much that's surprising in your discussion of slavery, including the prevalence of indentured white servants, which changed the way the founding generation thought about enslavement, and the brief moments when it looked like even Virginia and other southern states were going to eradicate it and the wind shifting, to the transformation of the judiciary from a body that was originally supposed to rarely exercise judicial review, only when the people themselves would have been mobilized to find an act unconstitutional to the more regularization of the striking down laws that we see today. And then that um, to this incredible chapter about the emergence of a private sphere, and then you say it all goes back to and looks forward to Rhode Island. So please take well, take what time you uh, let, can let to distill as well as you can founders. the rest we of the argument of this founders, great book. But you have to understand that for most people in America in the antebellum period, which is the period we mean going up to the Civil War, the founders were not the people we refer to, not the revolutionary leaders, not, not James Madison, not George Washington. Their founders were, uh, were John Winthrop, William Bradford, William Penn, John Smith, that is the 17th century founders. And when Bancroft wrote his great history in this period, he had 10 volumes on the colonial period. He thought the colonial period was the founding of America. It's almost, uh, in fact, in 1820 at the Constitutional Convention in New York, they're revising their constitution. Uh, Martin Van Buren, who becomes, I think, the first uh, American politician as a president, he did nothing. He never had any great speech. He never won a battle. He never, did any, never negotiated a great treaty. He was simply the most astute politician that America had ever seen up to that point. He organized a New York party that, that 
brought him into prominence. He's in, in that convention, he says, look at these guys back there, you know, Washington and Jefferson. He says, forget about them. They're aristocrats. They have nothing to do with us. We're Democrats. And of course, that was one of the great arguments of the Anti-Federalists, that the, the whole system is aristocratic. It's creating a, a, a government which will, which will the few will benefit at the expense of the many. So Martin Van Buren just dismisses them. It's Aver, almost single-handedly, it's Lincoln who makes the founders, the founders that we talk about. He's the one who says, the, men, the man or the group that created the Declaration of Independence, that document that, that makes the blood, of the, of the blood and the flesh of the flesh of all of these immigrants that have come into America with the founders, the, the blood of the, and, and flesh of the flesh of the people who do, drew up that document and, and the other documents by implication, including the Constitution, uh, are what hold us together as a people. That's Lincoln's great contribution. And, and he really brings the founders into prominence. There's a book about this. It's about, if you're interested, uh, Wesley Frank Craven. It came out around 1950 or so. He was a professor of, of early American history at, at Princeton. And it gets neglected. I, I don't know why, because it's so important to realize that the founders that they believed in were not the founders that we believe in. And it's really Lincoln that we uh, that created this. I, I think that, that that point needs, it's not in my book, but it needs to be mentioned. Give us one more burst of learning from your book, because there's, there's so much in it, and why don't you give your- Well, I your think on the slavery thing, we have to understand, this is the central issue that's obsessing us now. We have to understand two things. One, uh, or more, more than two things, but one, they all thought that slavery was on its last legs. Now, maybe people in South Carolina and Georgia didn't think that, but many Virginians did, and certainly the Northerners did, that slavery was dying. And in Virginia, they thought so too. Washington had more slaves than he knew what to do with, and tobacco is no longer being grown because they exhaust the soil. They're turning to wheat. Wheat does not require great labor. They're renting out their slaves. People like Washington are renting out their slaves in Norfolk or Richmond. And the idea of renting out the slaves, suddenly it says that's one step towards wage labor. So slavery is somehow on its last legs. It's dying away and there's, I can give you dozens and dozens of quotations from many figures saying there in 30 years, 40 years, there'll be no slavery in America. Now they couldn't have been more wrong. It was one of the many illusions they lived with. They had a lot of illusions, but don't get cocky. We have a lot of illusions too. We just don't know what they are. Some historian will tell us 200 years from now, wow, how could they think that? They thought that slavery was dying. Virginians were ready to abolish it. You know, the, the, the College of William and Mary, the, the trustees, the visit, the board of visitors, the wealthy slaveholders. In 1791, they give an honorary degree to Granville Sharp. Now, who's Granville Sharp? The leading British abolitionist at the time. That's the kind of question you want to ask a graduate student. Why would the, the College of William and Mary trustees, who are all slaveholders, why would they give 
an honorary degree to an abolitionist. This undercuts the 1619 project right, right out from under. That's the kind of issue that should provoke a lot of graduate students into thinking freshly about these issues. At any rate, they, they, they did have to accommodate the southern, the deep south. You know, Virginians, some of the Virginians, Washington and Jefferson, both think of themselves as middle states, not southern. The south is, is South Carolina and Georgia. And they, they want slaves. And there are compromises made in the convention. Compromises that are more easily made because they think slavery is going to die. Now, as I say, they couldn't have been more wrong. But you have to account for that. But they are, there are compromises. And, and the, 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 the South, of course, wants slaves to be counted fully for representation purposes. And the, the North says, no, not at all. And so they reach a compromise three-fifths which uh, becomes a source of Southern strength, political strength, so that it allows the South to dominate the government uh, throughout the whole antebellum period. And, and then the fugitive slave. So there are provisions in the Constitution which are, uh, to some, like Garrison, are seen to turn the document into a, a, a document of hell. Uh, but Madison and others are, crucial, are crucially important in keeping the word slave out of the Constitution, because this document is supposed to last forever, hopefully, and we don't want to taint it with, the, with, the, with the, even the word slavery. And so they, there's no recognition of property in man, as Madison puts it, in the Constitution. And they see the future as being the end of slavery. Now, they had no realization that there would be more slaves at the end of the revolution than there were at the beginning, even though the North abolishes slavery. That's another important thing. This is the, these are the first slaveholding states in the world, in the history of the world, that had legal slavery that abolish it. The Greeks never abolished slavery. The Romans didn't abolish slavery. But the American states in the North abolished slavery. Now, they don't have the number of slaves that the South has. They have 50,000, maybe, whereas there are hundreds of thousands in the South. And it's easier for them to do it. But nonetheless, they did it. And the way before any other place abolishes slavery. That should be emphasized. So, uh, and there's the expectation that this will spread. This is part of the Enlightenment program. They have a whole series of reforms. Each state, from Virginia northward, they're going to redo the criminal system. They're going to do away with her uh, inheritance laws, in, in, uh, primogeniture and entail. They're going to have public educational systems. They're going to abolish the, the uh, Anglican church. And they're going to abolish slavery. Now, they don't always succeed in those things. They didn't in Virginia with this public education, but they did abolish the, the Church of England and, separate, and create a separation of church and state. And they try, Jefferson tries to abolish slavery. He puts forth a bill, it gets defeated, but they don't wipe Jefferson out of the, he becomes still a major figure in the state. 
so that there are a lot of people thinking about getting rid of slavery. Now, what changes things, of course, is the, is the uh, rebellion in, in Saint-Domingue, which becomes Haiti. Uh, that scares the bejesus out of the Southerners. And, and from that moment on, uh, there's a reaction. And, and by, the, by the early 19th century, the Southerners are, are scared to death of slave rebellions. And all hope of reform in the South is gone. Thank you so much for that. You say at the beginning of the book that it will give comfort to partisans of no side, uh, as history never does. And the complexity of the story is radical in its freshness. And uh, it uh, spreads so much light. Um, friends, it's 7.45. My one job at the Constitution Center, like Chief Justice Roberts, is to end the shows on time. So we're going to give Gordon Wood the last word, but we will continue this conversation. All of our phenomenal panelists, uh, Ed Larson, Lucas Morell, and Emily Pierce are great friends of the center. We'll continue the conversation on podcasts, on our Constitution 101 classes, and throughout the year. And for now, please join me in thanking all of them for shedding such light on Constitution Day. Thank you very much indeed. This episode was produced by John Guerra, Tanea Tauber, Lana Ulrich, and me, Jackie McDermott. It was engineered by the National Constitution Center's AV team. If you'd like to check out more content about the American Revolution, we just hosted a constitutional class on the principles and ideas of the American Revolution, featuring renowned scholar Akhil Amar. We'll link to that in our show notes. And our fall season of debates and panels is well underway. If you've missed any of our recent programs, you can, of course, catch up via this podcast or watch the videos. They're available in our media library at constitutioncenter.org constitution. We also have many other exciting programs coming up this fall. Check out the full lineup and register to join us virtually at constitutioncenter.org debate. As always, we'll publish those programs on the podcast, so stay tuned here as well. Please rate, review, and subscribe to Live at the National Constitution Center on Apple Podcasts or follow us on Spotify. And join us back here next week. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jackie McDermott.